You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me the kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all round, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in a fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, 
Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Well, what do you think it would be like to see God face to face, to encounter God in a personal, real, vivid way? For some people, that's a very exciting thought. You have some sort of encounter with God all the time. You read the Bible, you read God's Word, and it feels like God is speaking to you directly, or you you pray and you know that you are speaking to Him. Perhaps you have those kind of wonderful mountaintop experiences of special times with God, and, and so you can't wait to see Him face to face. For others, you might dread the very thought of this. The, the thought of coming before God terrifies you. You feel like He would expose everything and you're worried that He would judge you without mercy. Others perhaps are kind of have this kind of inquisitive curiosity about it. You can't wait to ask Him all of these questions. Why did this happen? Tell us about platypuses and what, why did that happen? Some people, I have a friend actually who... who it said to me that he couldn't wait to see God because he wanted to spit in God's face. So bitter is he about God, so much as he hate God, that that's his desire. But what would it be like? How do you feel about it? What, what, how do you respond to the thought of facing God face to face? And I ask all this because in today's passage, we see a, an encounter between God and humanity, perhaps the most vivid and most real and dramatic in all of Scripture. And we're going to see so much about who God is, who God's people are, and what it means for God to meet with his people. So how about we pray as we get into it. Father God, uh, we live with you all the time, and yet there are special moments where we have a sense that we are encountering you in a more dramatic way. I ask, Lord, that this will be one of those moments. Uh, we are gathered together to worship you and to honour you and to think about you. I pray, Lord, that you will make your presence felt, that we will tremble a little, and that we will see the wonder and the glory of you and of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, before we kind of see this encounter between God and humanity, we kind of need to understand the context a little bit here. Uh, Exodus is a book uh, charting the relationship between God and the people of Israel, his people, a relationship that's been shaped and defined by the covenant. A covenant is an oath-bound agreement that establishes the relationships and uh, it's a little bit like a, a marriage covenant, for instance, establishes the relationship between a husband and a wife or there could be a treaty between two countries set up by a covenant. 
God has made a covenant with Israel, promising to be their God and making them his people. He has chosen them, he has marked them out and set them apart. And that's why he delivered them from Pharaoh and Egypt. He'd heard their cries, they were his people, and so he wanted to rescue them. And now that they're out, now that they're free, he wants to revisit this covenant, to reaffirm it, but also to help set them up for the future to help define for them what the future looks like. Here's my vision for this relationship. So he says to Moses in verse verse 3, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is almost like a renewal of vows, a marriage renewal. And God is saying, look, this is what I have. This is my vision for this relationship. This is what I'm offering you. This is what you're signing up for. First, we see that they are his treasured possession. Verse 5, God prizes Israel. He prizes his people. The whole earth belongs to him, but among all peoples, he has chosen Israel to be his people. He has set his love on them. Now, it's not because they're innately special or fancy or there's some great gift that they have. In fact, in Deuteronomy 7, he says, I didn't choose you because you were more in number than anyone else, but simply because I love you. That's what's special about Israel. They're loved by God. As Philip Ryken puts it, what makes God's people so precious was not their own intrinsic value. It was only the value placed on them by God's love. They are his treasured possession. And then he reveals his purpose for them. They are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Essentially, they have been saved to serve. As we're going to see later on in this series, the priests had a vital role in the life of Israel. They were the ones who would mediate between God and his people. They would come to the people with God's words and then they would come back to God with the sacrifices of the people. They were the go-between, the intermediary. Now, this is reserved for the Levites, the descendants of Aaron. But now we see in another sense, the whole people of Israel have the role of priests for the world. They're the mediators between God and the rest of the world. They were set apart to serve the nations as a people. They're called to stand between God and humanity, bringing God's words, his message to the world, and then uh, praying for the world and, and seeking to bring all people from all nations to God. As Tim Chester writes, God intends not only to make himself known to Israel, but also through Israel. The world could not see God, but the world could see Israel and see his glory in them. Really, this is what's in line with what God had said to Abraham all those centuries before, when he established the covenant in the first place. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's people are blessed to be a blessing. Uh, That's why it's so important that they be a holy nation. God is a holy and perfect God. And so his people, to represent him truly and properly, they need to be holy as well. They need to be like the God they represent. But they have this incredible role, this incredible purpose. They are saved to serve. 
It's a wonderful thing, a treasured possession of God, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And as soon as Moses brings this to the people, look, here's what God is offering us, inviting us to embrace they go for it. Verse 8, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So God gives them the greatest privilege of all. He comes to meet with them. This is really why God has done all of this. This was his great plan. Uh, verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. As Philip Ryken puts it, the Exodus was not just about getting Israel out of Egypt, it was about getting Israel close to God. This is why he's done this. He wanted to be with his people. He's chosen them so that he can dwell with them, that they can fellowship together. In fact, that's really what the rest of the whole book of Exodus is all about. Uh, We're in chapter 2, sorry, we're in chapter 19, but for the rest of the book, they're going to be here Right here, in verse 2, we're told that they're camping at the Mount Sinai and they're actually going to be here for the rest of the book, getting God's law, hearing how to worship him in the tabernacle and so on. God just wants to dwell with them. This is what it's all about. They'll camp here for more than a year. As Tim Chester puts it, God doesn't simply save the Israelites from slavery and death. He saves them for something. He saves them for relationships. He saves them so that they can enjoy his presence. That's what it's all for. But before they meet with God, they must prepare themselves. Verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them. Set them apart today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Uh, they need to wash their garments, put on their Sunday best. Later on, we're told that they must not go near a woman. They must fast from sexual intimacy, not because there's something wrong with that, but because God wants them to focus their minds. But even with all of these preparations, they must be extremely careful, extremely respectful. Verse 12, you shall set limits for the people all around the mountain, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. You see, God wants to meet with them, but they can't be casual about this. They cannot presume to just approach him. They cannot just make themselves at home with him. In fact, there's a real danger in meeting with God. You get these extra warnings. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. It's, it's almost like God is, is laying out the, the barrier around the priceless artwork or, or you're at Buckingham Palace. You can't go into uh, beyond those gates. They're fenced off. So God is coming to meet with them, but they can't get too close. They can't break through because we're told in verse 24 that God could break out against them. If they break through, he will break out to destroy them. So there's actually something dangerous about meeting with God. He is holy and they are not. He is perfect. So they can't just walk up to him. As Tim Chester puts it, it's as if the holiness of God is nuclear. 
He is dangerously holy. I wonder what it was like for the people of Israel those three days as they're preparing for this. What's it going to be like to see him? Perhaps you've had a meeting, you know, you're meeting with someone important and you're a bit nervous about it. You probably didn't think if you got too close, you would be burnt up. But that's what they're facing here. There would be a sense of excitement, anticipation, but also trepidation. What's this going to be like? Well, on the morning of the third day, they discover just what it is like to encounter God. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. They're standing there and they're, okay, we're ready. An extraordinary thought that they're now going to face God. Verse 18, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. What an extraordinary scene. We've seen throughout the book of Exodus what it's like that God has this immense power. We've seen him control the elements. But now those elements are around him almost. He is in them almost. He is so close right now. And there's thunder and lightning, smoke and fire. And just imagine the mountain trembling around you and that ominous sound of the trumpet getting louder and louder, otherworldly, eerie, overwhelming. There's something visceral about this kind of knee-shaking. But there's also something symbolic. The thunder represents God's power. The cloud represents his mystery because an infinite God stretches outside of our comprehension and then the fire encapsulates that sense of what it's like to approach a holy God. There, There is fire there. There's something beautiful and captivating, but also dangerous and intimidating. And then the trumpet speaks of his kingly rule and then the sound of his voice. There's something overwhelming about it. In verse 16, we're told that all of the people in the camp trembled. And I wonder what you make of this. What you make of God as we see him here? Is he foreign to you? You see, there's every chance that this is foreign to you because we don't tend to think of God like this. We think of God as a kind old man sitting on a cloud. Or we think of God as our father who we approach in our prayers. We think of God as... Jesus, healing the sick, being kind and gentle. Now, God is some of those things. He's not an old man on a cloud, but he is those other things. That's true, but he's also this, the God of Exodus 19, the God of glory and wonder, the God of blinding holiness, the God of furious, overwhelming power. 
they often theologians talk about the transcendence of God and the imminence of God. His transcendence is his greatness, his otherworldliness, his out thereness, and his imminence is his closeness. Now, we tend to like the idea of God's imminence. We like the thought that God is alongside us, that he's holding us, he's the footprints in the sand, or he's, he's right next to us, he's our mate, he's our friend, he's Jesus, all of these things. We like that imminence, but we also need to recognise, yes, God is close, but this is the God who is close. He is this kind God, but he's also this mighty God, this holy God, this God of fire. That's the God who's close to us. And whenever God's people in the Bible experience this, they're always overwhelmed by it. In Isaiah 6, uh, the prophet says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And an angel cries out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke, and Isaiah is reduced to nothing. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And something similar happens in the New Testament uh, at the Transfiguration. For much of his ministry, uh, Jesus conceals much of his glory. But there, in this moment... With just a few of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up on a mountain, we're told that he was transfigured and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And the disciples kind of are terrified. A bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And they fell on their faces and were terrified. That's what happens when we truly realise what God is like, when we encounter God face to face. 1 Timothy 6, he is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who dwells in unapproachable light. And here's the thing, we will encounter him too we will see him face to face. At some point, at the end of the world, the unapproachable God will approach all people. Matthew 24, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. God will come to the earth. And then each one of us, each one of us will be brought before him. 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And why? So that each one of us may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Each one of us will face our creator, the God of the mountain, the God of the fire and the smoke and the thunder. Each one of us will face him face to face. Now, how do we feel about that? 
how do we feel about facing this God and him looking at our life? I don't know about you, but I find it overwhelming. It's scary, the thought of this God facing me. And you see that in this passage with the Israelites. You know, they start the passage all confident. You can be God's people. All right, great. We're signing up. Whatever God says, we will do. But now they're realising the difficulty of this, the weight of his glory, of his holiness, their imperfection, the gap between them and him. And they shy away from God. Philip Riken says, God was bringing his people close already at Mount Sinai, yet the closer they came, the more clearly they saw the vast distance that still separated them from God. At the same time that God was revealing himself, he was also concealing himself. The more they experienced his imminence, the more they recognised his transcendence. I think what they're experiencing here is the paradox that's at the heart of humanity's relationship with God. You see, we want to be with God. We were made to be with God. But we sense that we don't belong in his presence. There's this desire to be with him. All of religion, any religion, is ultimately a, a, stretching, a stretching out, a, a, a yearning for the divine, an attempt to reach out to God. But there's also this instinctive understanding in every religion, that we don't measure up, that we fall short of his glory. And that points to the, the story that's at the heart of humanity. You see, we belong with God. Our desire is the right desire because we were made that way. God created humanity to live with him. We are made in his image to live in his presence. And that's what Adam and Eve experienced. The first humans experienced life with him. There's this idea of God walking in the garden with him. They, they are confident and comfortable with God. Yes, he's holy, but they are too. And so they can be with God. It's possible. But then sin destroys all of that. And they're cast out from his presence. Genesis 3, he drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There's this idea that we, we cannot be around this God. But that's the glory of Exodus 19. Because here we see God reaching out to people. God has chosen Israel to be close. He's made this people so that he can draw them close to him. Yes, humans don't belong in his presence, but God is reaching out to us, reaching out to Israel. And so even though there's all of this fire and thunder and threatening stuff here, there's also an invitation and a way forward. See, it's really interesting what the Israelites do. In the next chapter, God will speak to them and give them the Ten Commandments, a way of helping them see how to live with him. And at the end of it, we're told that the Israelites, when, they heard all, when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. You see, 
they want to be around God, but they sense that they can't. And so they say, look, we, we, need, someone, we need someone in between. We need someone to come between God and, and us. We need someone to be a mediator. And they know that Moses is the right person for this. He's always had this special relationship with God. In Exodus 3, God met with him on, on, on the same mountain that he's here now. Even then, he, after that, ever since that, he's experienced God's power working through him. And now as they come, Moses has special privileges. The people are told to keep at a distance from the mountain, but Moses is invited up it. Verse 20, the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. So they sense that he is someone who can approach God. He is someone who can inter intercede for them. He can be the mediator. And so throughout this passage, we see Moses do that job. He makes something like three return trips up and down the mountain, bringing God's message to the people and then bringing the message back to God from the people. He's the one who facilitates that relationship. He makes it possible. It's a profound honour and it's one that he deserves. He's spoken about throughout the Old Testament as the man of God, someone who walked with God, and there's this quality to his life that's so different and unique. You see it all the time. The people grumble and so on. He, he stays uh, trusting and faithful. He's consistent. He's courageous. He's a great mediator. But he's not the perfect mediator. You see, even Moses, the man of God, had his own sin. And so even here in this passage, or in this moment, Moses felt the fear as well. Hebrews 12, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. And even Moses, even as he went up the mountain, couldn't see God face to face. He actually asked God to show him his glory. Exodus 33, please show me your glory. But God responds, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. An, un, an imperfect, unholy person cannot see God face to face and live. And in fact, there's this terrible end to Moses' story where we see his sin. And so even though Moses is this mediator, he's not the perfect mediator. He's not the adequate mediator. Someone needs to mediate even for him. And in fact, Moses recognises this. He tells the people, Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. He's pointing there towards Jesus. Jesus is the go-between, the one who is the mediator between God and humanity the perfect mediator, because he is God and he is a human, a perfect human. He's God, Hebrews 1, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, but he's also a human, born of a woman, a baby in a manger that grew and matured, felt hunger, tiredness, even anxiety. In Jesus... We have this encounter between God and humanity, a person who is fully God and fully human. 
Here at Mount Sinai, God, uh, Moses came up the mountain to meet with God. In Jesus, God came down, not to the top of the mountain, but to the dust of the earth to meet with humanity and to make it possible for all of us to live with humanity in his presence face to face. Jesus made this possible through his life and his death. He lived a perfect life on our behalf. He obeyed God as a human in our place. He did what we've failed to do. He was holy. Just as we failed to be holy, he was always holy. He always did what God required. And now this is placed on our account. The perfect holy life of Jesus is placed on our account. So that when God sees us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees Jesus' perfection. So Jesus did that. And then carrying our sin, he took the punishment for it. So all of our sin was taken off us and put onto his account. And then carrying that, he bore the punishment for it so that we wouldn't have to. So his perfect life is put on us. Our sinful life is put on him. And so then we come before God as acceptable. 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God looks at us. He doesn't see our sin. He only sees what Jesus has done. This is what God is offering to us. It's offering to anyone who will humbly recognise their need for this. You see, when we know that God is so holy, often we just think, okay, well, I've just got to be the best person I can be, but we'll never be good enough. Even Moses, the man of God, wasn't good enough. Perhaps we just give up and just walk away. It's too hard. Or perhaps we say, okay, God, I can't do this. I need you to do this for me. Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Who who can come before God? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. If we are willing to acknowledge our need of him, if we feel exposed by his holiness, and we ask for Jesus to give us his righteousness, then he will. In Jesus, we are clothed and secure. Isaiah 61, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. God is still the God of the mountain, the God of smoke and fire. And the only way we can stand before him is if we are holy and in Christ we are. In Christ we are clothed. So when God looks at us, he sees his perfection. Jude 1, God has come to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. 
as Tim Chester puts it, the sinner-consuming holiness of God consumed the body of Jesus as he hung in our place on the cross. God broke out against his own son so that we can come before God, not with fear, but with joy. And you see this in the Scriptures in the New Testament. There's these wonderful verses in the New Testament about God's people seeing God face to face. 1 John 3, Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Or 1 Corinthians 13, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. What they're talking about is they're going to see God at the end of the world, at the end of their life, they're going to see God face to face. And what I'm amazed here is that they're not afraid. They're confident. They're not casual. They're not taking it for granted. They still respect the greatness and the glory and the holiness of God, but they know that they can stand before this God because they're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Can you see the miracle of this? When, Jesus, when God came down on the mountain, everyone cowered. Even Moses trembled. But when we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we can face God with a head up, confident of his acceptance. Amazing. And then the knowledge of this changes us now. 1 John 3, we're going to see him as he is. And then John says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The thought that we are now accepted by God inspires us to pursue his holiness. We don't uh, need to have it so that we can, uh, we don't need to earn our holiness to face him. But because we've seen his holiness and it's been given to us, then we want it for ourselves. We want to become like that. And then we have this extraordinary role. 1 Peter 2, Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. He's quoting from Exodus 19, but now he's saying it's for all people. It's not just the Jews. It's not just Israel. It's anyone who trusts in Jesus. Anyone who trusts in Jesus is now a people for God's own possession. And now we are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. We have the opportunity to come between the world and God. We have the opportunity to tell the world what God is like, to proclaim his excellencies and to invite them to come and know God as well. Because God is returning and he promises to come back, not just in judgment, but in love and grace to live with us forever. Revelation 21, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The God of Exodus 19 is coming to make his home with us. And today, if you have trusted in Jesus, if you do today for the first time, 
then you will be on there too. When you face God, he won't see your sin. He'll see what Jesus has done. And he'll welcome you home to live with him in his presence, not in fear, but in joy, not in judgment or death, but in life forever, full and forever. We were made for this. Sin destroyed that, but God has made a new thing happen, a new way, a new world for us to be with him. Let's pray. Father God, you are the God of Exodus 19. We don't often think of you like this. To be honest, we'd rather not. We're intimidated by this God and your holiness. We're intimidated by your greatness because we know that we fall short. Lord, help us not to run from that. Help us not to just be sceptical, to write you off. Oh, what, a, what an evil God that he'd be so judgy. Help us not to be like that. Help us to acknowledge and to feel our nakedness and then come to Jesus to be clothed because you have made it possible. You, the holy God, the the God of thunder and lightning has come beyond the mountain to the earth to live for us and to die for us so that we could be clothed in your righteousness. May we feel that clothing today. You are great and holy, but in Christ we stand before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.